Welcome to episode 110 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have a great show for you today with Dr. Dana Battaglia and Dr. Mary McDonald. Dana is a PhD level speech language pathologist and Mary is a PhD level BCBAD. And we have an amazing chat about collaboration, the ethics of collaboration. We get into specific case studies discussing verbal imitation and pecs as well. What's so interesting about Dana and Mary is that they met many moons ago when they were working in the same autism school. And if you know anything about my background, my second year as a speech language pathologist, I started working at the Cleveland Clinic and they had a school that is now called the Learner School. And I too made lifelong friends that are both speech language pathologists, board certified behavior analysts, and teachers as well. So we have a great conversation about collaboration and how you can implement these strategies into your own program practice. I can't wait to get started. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 110 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have a great episode today. Today, we have with us Dr. Dana Battaglia and Dr. Mary McDonald. Thanks so much for joining us and coming on the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. I am excited to share with our audience where you got started on your journey into the field. So I don't know, Mary, if you want to start and just tell us a little bit about how you got into the field and maybe what you're up to now. Sure. It's it's actually kind of interesting. I wasn't really sure, you know, when I first started out in college where I would end up. Um, I always say it's kind of a joke, but, you know, when children are young, they say, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a teacher, but nobody says I want to be a behavior analyst. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I didn't really know. And then um, I started taking courses in psychology and I found that interesting. And then I took some courses uh, that focused more on behavior analysis. And I saw the original Lovas film and I thought, wow, this is like trying to find a cure for cancer. And, you know, I was just 100% in and I really never looked back. Amazing. Awesome. What about you, Dana? How did you get into the field and what are you up to now? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I, um, I'm i a first gen and I grew up in a bilingual household and I was always interested in languages and I was always interested in helping people. And like Mary, um, I never heard the word speech language pathologist. I didn't grow up saying I want to be a speech language pathologist. <laughs> um, so when I went to undergrad, I wasn't sure if I was going to seek out psychology or world languages. And somehow I found speech language pathology, which really kind of blended those together. Um, and then um, in my first year of college, I heard about this new school that was opening in 1995 and it was opened by parents for children with autism and i had no frame of reference i didn't know what autism was and i showed up there because i was just looking for some experience to put on my resume and figure out what i wanted to do and that was actually where mary and i met and um the rest is history i fell in love with autism and language um and the interface 
interface between language and ABA. And, you know, I had lots of twists and turns. And I then went into higher education where I actually shepherded curriculum, uh, shepherded courses into the curriculum related to autism and speech and language with a prong of ABA. And I uh, haven't looked back. And now I am um, a committee on special education chair in the Westbury Union Free School District. That's amazing. And it's yeah. amazing how you said you weren't really sure what autism was maybe back then. I just made almost 30 years ago. Yes. I yeah. just made a, I like to disseminate information and I do that through social media. So I've got my TikTok, but I just made a TikTok and I said, true or false, all speech therapists have to take a course on autism. And it's eye opening that even if I would have taken a course though 20 years ago, so much has changed in our research. Oh, yeah. And so much has changed just with the autism community. And but it it would have been like a starting point, even though I remember I took an AAC course and now that's all so outdated. But it at least gives you a point mm -hmm. of reference. And I think people don't For understand sure. that we don't take anything specific. And that might have changed now. And maybe I'm sure you can take an elective course and things like that, but it wasn't a requirement when I got my degree and I, I've been practicing about 20 years. So, um, yeah. so exciting. And so that's so cool that you guys have been working together. Um, and I guess that's my first question is when did you start uh, working together? When did you begin your work together um, as a team? So, so I, so I started um, with Dana really, as she said, really at the Genesis School in 1995 when the program opened. You know, I was very excited. I was, you know, still pretty new in the field. I had been working for an organization called CUSAC for a few years at that point. And this opportunity came to start a school for children with autism. And it was really kind of my dream at that point in life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and so that's, that's kind of how I started out. And then walked in Dana. And, uh, you know, we just we just got along from really the first moment um, in, in all different ways, professionally and developing, you know, a friendship as well through the years. And mm -hmm. that's, that's really kind of how we first, you know, came to meet. I was running the school. I started the school and Dana came in and started providing speech services and teaching me, you know, so many things that I just didn't know, you know, at that time and really broadening my world. That's amazing. I, you know, some you say that you guys are friends, maybe outside of work as well. I, my second year as a speech therapist, I took a position at the Cleveland Clinic. Now it's called the Learner School. It used to be called the Center for Autism, and it was also spearheaded and kind of started with some parents advocating for ABA way back in the day mm -hmm. when it wasn't readily available. But people that I met about twenty years ago, I was just last weekend asked to be my one of my best friends' goddaughters, which was such an honor and I met her mm -hmm. at the Center for Autism. So I have said that I made and I have another lifelong friend from that journey too. It was a very I always call that time in my life an autism boot camp where I was really learning about oh, learners yeah. who really it was hard for them to learn. And so it was mm -hmm. a very intense um experience. But with that came lifelong friendships and and just a love for helping, you know, autistic learners too. So that's neat. That sounds like a kind of parallel experience. So how did you lean on evidence to guide your clinical practice? What did that look like? Uh, Mary, I don't know if you want to start. 
<laughs> okay, sure. So I feel like, you know, obviously, once starting to move into the field of behavior analysis, you know, it is nothing but science in behavior analysis. That's, you know, that's kind of how we we live and breathe. And so I've always been committed to, you know, the science of behavior analysis, the idea of evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. I was the president um, for a number of years of ASAP, the Association for Science and Autism Treatment, which was an exciting time. Mm-hmm. Uh, still miss my days there. And I still, you know, work with them sort of here and there when I can. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dana actually became, you know, a part of ASAT as well uh, for a while there. So Dana and I have crossed paths or at least brought our, each other onto our paths um, many times through the right. years. But as far as, you know, evidence, I think that um, as a behavior analyst, part of our code is, you know, most certainly to adhere to the science and to adhere to the evidence Mm -hmm. and to really focus, you know, on that. But regardless of the code, you know, that's just, that was my attraction to behavior analysis in the beginning Mm -hmm. was the fact that it was science-based. And to be honest, you know, I joked before when I said, you know, as a child, some people say they want to be a teacher or a doctor or something, but to be honest, what I really wanted to be was Mother Teresa, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> I actually thought I could go and be Mother Teresa. Um, she was kind of my idol when I was young. Mm-hmm. And so I think about behavior analysis and what I love about it so much is that I feel like I get to help people, but I get to do it within the realm of science. And so I feel like I can know I'm going to make a difference in a really powerful way. And so that's really how I've kind of, you know, embedded science into my life. Love that. So, Rose, another parallel um, with <laughs> Mary's affinity to Mother Teresa, um, I actually was raised with a very strong sense of clergy. Purely coincidence. It's, it, we laugh about it all the time. I have aunts and uncles who are priests and, and generals <laughs> and superiors, and it's, it's, it's very funny. Um, with that came a strong sense of leadership, to be honest, and a lot of exposure to leadership and, and good faith and goodwill. That being said, as a clinician scientist, whenever I would make an intervention decision, I always leaned on the evidence. And that, again, is another parallel between speech language pathology and behavioral analysis. But in working together over the decades, what Mary and I have found separately and together is that there really is a dearth in the literature on the interface of the two fields. And that was when we said, well, we need to change that. You know, there has been some progress. Um, In particular, I think that um, the article by Laura Schreiberman and colleagues in 2015 on naturalistic uh, developmental behavioral interventions Mm -hmm. um, was a really good starting point for the conversation. Mm -hmm. What makes me sad is that Mary and I have been talking about this for almost 30 years. (laughs) So it's it's like we're making progress, but the, the polarity is still there. And that that's kind of sad because honestly, when the two fields get together, our outcomes are always maximized. Always. Exactly. When we think about developmental language, when we think about um, FBAs and the interface of language and communication, when we think about, you know, whenever I have a question that, you know, I do have this behavioral foundation just by infusion, I'll call Mary and I'll say, hey, Mary, this XYZ event happened what's the word for that again? Or did I miss something? And she'll do the same. And it's such a wonderful process. I'm so grateful to have this lifeline, but we need more evidence to even show that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it's so interesting because, you know, Dana, you, you say that and we feel like we know that because we've been practicing together and presenting together and doing all these different things together. And we've, you know, we've looked at the research together, but there are so many people out there who just haven't done that. There are so many behavior analysts who have not really worked with a speech language pathologist. There are so many speech language pathologists who haven't really worked with a behavior analyst. And sometimes they are working together, but on a very minimal surface kind of level, but not truly working together, which is what I love so much about, you know, having the opportunity. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of progress still to be made. Well, there's a lot of people working for collaboration. I think the one thing that's a barrier is that what I'm really finding is that a lot of ADA clinics do not employ a speech language pathologist. Now, that's not always the case. The gold standard mm -hmm. is my career. I've always chosen places here in Northeast Ohio, the Cleveland area. We have some really amazing providers who have a speech therapist on staff as employees. And so it's really, mm -hmm. really nice. But what I have fi I'm finding, I'm licensed in Washington and Oregon State, I, and I provide consultations and I provide supervision for SLPAs in each of those states. But what I'm finding is that for the majority of ABA providers, they do not have a speech language pathologist, even as a consult. Mm -hmm. And so I think it gets really tricky because a lot of BCBAs are tasked with creating language and communication intervention. And we don't take a course specifically on developmental language. And I think that would be so important. We're actually, mm -hmm. if you're listening to this live, we are doing an ASHA and ACE approved course later in the next couple months about language milestones, because mm -hmm. I do think that's going beyond the task list. I do think it's very, very important because often as BCBAs, we are tasked with giving mm -hmm. an assessment and then creating goals that are all about communication. And so I think that's an area where we need to to work on. Um, but I know, yes, I've been in these really amazing collaborative <laughs> relationships too. And um, and it's hard if you haven't, if you've had one bad experience with a speech therapist or one bad experience with a BCBA, please know that there are a lot of people that are are kind and collaborative. So how do you feel your collaboration has enhanced one another's practices? Wow. Oh my gosh, in so many ways. Um, I don't know, Mary, if you want to start, but... Uh... You could start, Dana. Okay. So I just feel like I'm a better speech language pathologist because I have a really strong understanding of behavior. Mm -hmm. And when I don't, I call Mary, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, not everybody has a, a, a bat phone to Mary, but what I'm saying is that I think it's this humility across between both of us that we know what we don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, when I teach in my course, specifically on my course dedicated to autism, I really talk about the functions of behavior. No one talks about that in the curriculum for speech language pathology. Right. Because if you don't understand the function of a behavior, you could inadvertently be reinforcing it. And that is something that I think a lot of SLPs don't understand. And again, it goes back to training, like in the initial graduate program. So. Mm -hmm. Whenever I was developing even a course, because Mary and I also work in higher ed, um, I would say, hey, Mary, you know, I want to add this activity. Do you think it will be functional in advancing our mutual goals, which is to demonstrate this interface? So um, that's the short answer, but I could go on and on and on. <laughs> Love that. 
Yeah. And, you know, I was actually thinking of some of the same kinds of things. You know, I, I'm a faculty member at Hofstra. I'm, I'm full-time faculty and I teach in the special ed department. And, you know, I teach courses within um, that, that fall into some of the special education masters, but also an advanced certificate in applied behavior analysis. And now we have a new online masters in applied behavior analysis. And within that program, you were mentioning, Rose, earlier about speech language pathologist, you know, taking a course on autism. And Dana and I have talked about a lot of that through the years as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just thinking about the course that I teach on autism to behavior analysts and sometimes special educators as well. And within that course, I have a whole, um, I'm going to say section that focuses on speech and language. Mm -hmm. And where did I get that information from? <laughs> My friend Dana, right? <laughs> And so, you know, I, I do agree that I think that, you know, just kind of being open and, you know, knowing that we don't all know everything. And I find that sometimes in some disciplines, people tend to think that they know everything and we don't right. know everything. Uh, and so I think it's important to recognize the importance of the other person's discipline, to be able to have conversations with people from other disciplines so that you can incorporate that, you know, into your practice, into your teaching, into higher education, all of these kinds of things. Because not only better outcomes, of course, for the students who we work with, but in this case, now we're thinking about higher education, also better outcomes for our students in higher education, mm -hmm. who then go out and practice and it's like that, you know, broader impact, I think, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to teach in higher ed, because I felt we could make a, you know, a larger impact in that way. And so now you're having an effect not only on them, but on their students, right? So definitely, I would say that, you know, through the years, you know, being able to take that piece that was not part of my practice initially, but mm -hmm. to be able to really embrace and to incorporate and to really make my practice better because of what I've learned. So I'll give one example that's very clear to maybe most behavior analysts. Um, so if you're working with a young child with autism, one of the things that you might be working on as a behavior analyst when it comes to speech and language might be verbal imitation. Mm -hmm. And there are behavior analysts who are absolutely working on verbal imitation, and they have data sheets drawn up that a speech therapist would have a heart attack if they saw them, because <laughs> you know, it's asking for the student to say things that they can't say, or to say things that they shouldn't be saying yet, you know, it's way, you know, beyond their age level, you know, their developmental level, things like that. So that's just like one quick example of something that, you know, speech mm -hmm. language pathologists have really taught me to be more aware of, where mm -hmm. as a behavior analyst without that training, how would I know that? Unless I, you know, went and took some special courses and self-taught myself, you know, you just wouldn't know those things. So I think that sometimes you don't know what you don't know unless you have these conversations. I love that so much. And Dr. Barbara Esch, who created the ESA, which is the mm -hmm. ECOIC uh, portion of the VB map, came out with a statement. I'm close with Nikia Dower. I'm sure you both know her. She's kind of my my hype girl, my BCBA SLP bestie online. And she posts things and Dr. Esch said, 
please do not <laughs> pick verbal imitation targets directly from the ESA unless they make sense and are meaningful and functional for the learner. And I actually, I get emails like this all the time just because of my social media presence. But a BCBA reached out to me last week through a direct message on Instagram and said, Hey, I saw that you posted that we shouldn't be picking targets that way. And can you help me with, you know, verbal imitation targets or something mm-hmm. like that? So I thought that was really great because sometimes I think that we're not analyzing things and that we aren't having these conversations. And sometimes we just, because of our work environments, we may just not have somebody that is of the other discipline to talk with. And so it can get really tricky. But I do a lot of training on that specifically about verbal imitation. And and that's Mm -hmm. what I plan to cover too in the milestones, just talking about some of the uh, most current research on speech sound development and telling people, you know, oh my gosh, this the course that we have to take on phonetics and all the transcribing and that's what <laughs> nightmares are made of. It was very, very oh, yeah. specific and detailed. <laughs> I loved it. I still have my book. It's like in my closet there. But I don't think people understand how much knowledge speech language pathologists have in that area and how we can really as a team make such strides when we work together. So I love the idea of just having those conversations. So, so great. Yeah. Um, so I know you guys have done some writing together. What motivated you to, to do those projects to write together? Well, I think it's more of the same. I'm sorry to give such a vague answer, but, you know, as we already talked about with specific cases, you know, Mary and I were actually clinicking a case. Um, I'm going to, Mary, I'm going to talk about the PEX paper that we wrote. Mm-hmm. So um, we were clinicking a case and, Um, we were trying to figure out how to help a young learner with increasing the use of PECs, but we were really hoping to mitigate, mitigate some maladaptive behaviors, right? So of course, again, being clinician scientists, we went to look at the literature and there was really nothing out there to talk about that correlation. So then we said, you know what, we need to do a literature review on this, like a formal literature review. And we did. And we actually found three articles at the time. I hope there are more more recently that talked about this, but it was almost like a sidebar that, oh, and their behavior was reduced, you know? And so we felt that that was just publishing a lit review on the correlation between behavior and use of PECs was really, really important so that someone can go to something and say, okay, well, there's a little bit of literature, there's more to be done, but someone has looked at this systematically. And Dana, it was so interesting, right? Because it just shows you again, the fields, because when we're looking at PECs, very often a speech language pathologist is looking at PECs as, you know, means to an end for communication, which of course makes sense, right? And the literature was reflecting that. But as a behavior analyst, I'm coming to Dana and saying, well, okay, yes, of course I want them to communicate, but I also want them to communicate because they're having this behavior. And I think if we can teach them to communicate with the PECs based on the FBA, looking at FCT that, you know, maybe I'm going to see that decrease in behavior. And that's what I'm really looking for, right? Of course, I want them to communicate, but I'm trying to, you know, to decrease this behavior. And that's what was so interesting, you know, when we looked at the literature that people just weren't looking at that. And so that's the way that I've felt, you know, through the years very often when Dana and I talk, we listen to each other, but I feel like our fields are not listening to each other very Mm -hmm. often. 
there's this, you know, disconnect. Um, you know, we this is how we do it, and that's it. And we're not really hearing, you know, what what you're saying about what might be important. And so that's one of the reasons why we wrote that particular paper because we felt like, wow, you know, maybe some more speech language pathologists will read this and say, huh. You know what? A collateral effect, looking at the effect of PECs on behavior and seeing that change, that could be really interesting to see also. And maybe some behavior analysts will read it and say, oh, this is really interesting. Okay, we need to look at this even more. You know, we need to bring the two together. So I think that that's very often been our motivation. You know, how do we get not only to make the changes for the cases that we're working on or the answer the mm -hmm. question that we have in that moment, but how can we then affect, you know, sort of the field and maybe get people to see things differently or bring it to the forefront or get them to maybe behave, you know, differently to some degree. You know, I, I find that um, for behavior analysts, we get caught up a lot in our ethical code. And sometimes behavior analysts might feel that they can't do certain things or that they shouldn't, um, you know, step outside of their, I'm going to say, comfort zone of behavior analysis. And yes, our ethical code does tell us to stay within our scope of practice and to practice mm -hmm. behavior analysis and everything should be science and evidence-based. But what I think that they don't realize is that speech language pathologists are our cousins. You know, <laughs> they're, our, they're, they're right there with us and they're science-based too. And I think that if people understood that and saw that more, they would realize. But I just want to put a little plea out to the behavior analysts for a minute related to this code, because I think it is a stopping point sometimes for collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I think that what people need to do is look at the code and look at a few particular areas of the code. So one is 2.10, which is all about collaboration. Mm -hmm. One is 3.01, which is about responsibility to clients. And the other is 3.06. And every one of them talks about collaboration, responsibility to clients, and always, and every one of them talks about the best interest of the client. And that's the bottom line, I think, for me, and I know for mm -hmm. Dana, um, and I would hope for everyone that works in our fields is that it's always about the best interest of the client. And so I think that's really the bottom line for everything that we do. So that's my plea to any behavior analyst listening is, you know, um, you could have, you know, such a great relationship with somebody if you're open to it and if you can look at your code and see that how important that actually mm -hmm. is you know I love that you bring up the specific code items that really kind of got me because I teach the co the ethics <laughs> class here at Kent State right. for people becoming BCBAs so I love it are you guys listening yep. this is good stuff <laughs> I do love that and I I there's an article that Dr. Broadhead wrote about ethics and collaboration mm -hmm. and one of the lines that I always talk about is and this is kind of I I think some speech therapists get a bad taste in their mouth because this is just a random scenario but one that I know happens a lot let's say that there's a student and he's a public he or she is a public school student and that student is really struggling with their behavior. And so an outside consultant from without outside the public school system comes in and it's a BCBA. And that BCBA mm -hmm. is observing and watching and looking. And then the speech therapist and the BCBA are talking and the speech therapist shares that they're working on something or how they're doing something. And then the BCBA says, well, where did you get your research for that? And then Dr. Broadhead said something that I think is profound. He says, when a BCBA says, where did you get your research for that? And I might be paraphrasing, it erodes the professional relationship. Right. It mm -hmm. erodes the professional relationship. And honestly, it's just 
that one moment that can happen, which is a scenario that I'm sure is happening all over the United States, at least on a daily basis mm-hmm. in the school systems. And and then that's hard. It's hard to recoup from that. So I like the idea of opening up the lines of communication. And I love the fact that you tied it back into the code because I talk about <laughs> the code a lot in, in the form of collaboration. So I think it's definitely a process. And I think it's amazing that you were both working so hard to make things better. I also had on, and I know you guys probably know them, Dr. Teresa Cardin and Mm -hmm. Dr. Lena Slim. They are friends of mine and they were on a previous podcast and we also talked about collaboration and they are both PhDs and doing work in this area. So thank you for all of your your support and collaboration (laughs) is is so very important. So if people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they find out about each of you? So I have a website. Sorry, sorry, Dana. No, it's okay. Um, I was going to say I'm developing a website, so I have plain old okay. email. But go ahead, Mary. You go. You go first. <laughs> so, so Mary, Mary, really easy. MaryMcDonald.org, and um, I'll have information on there about many of the different things that Dana and I have actually worked together on. I have some of the uh, the actual references and different presentations and all kinds of good things. Hmm. Wonderful. And I am working on a website right now. So people can email me at dbataglia.slp at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter, first name, last name, and LinkedIn as well. So I'm pretty easy to find on social. Oh, and Facebook. That's true. You can find me on those two. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you both on. Thanks, Uh, Thank you so much, Rose. This has been wonderful. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.